Well, hey, everybody. Uh, thank you for being with us. I know um, the schedule is altered today, so thank you for being flexible. Uh, if you would, um, turn to Romans chapter 5. As, uh, as most of you all know, normally we do a chapter-by-chapter -chapter study of Scripture, except for on the first Sunday of every month. On the first Sunday, we change it up a little bit, and I actually address a particular theological doctrine that we want to make sure that our church is knowledgeable of. So when I do that, it's still exegetical in that we're studying Scripture, but also we're, we're covering more Scripture. It's a little bit more like systematic theology that we're doing. So uh, if you would, turn with me then to uh, Romans chapter 5. And um, I want to address one key thing here to start us off, because some of you might wonder, like, well, Dan, why do you choose these particular topics? Um, well, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, but one of them uh, is that if you've ever heard of the State of Theology survey that uh, Ligonier Ministries does every two years. Anybody heard of this? Yes? Uh, what do they do is they survey evangelicals as well as the general population, and they ask them some pretty basic theological questions. And the idea is to see what do evangelicals believe, what does the general population believe, and is that in keeping with Scripture? And I will tell you, the last few years have not been so great. Um, especially these last two years, we can mark a, de a steep decline among even evangelicals on basics of the faith and what they believe about them. Now, a little side note, I recognize now that we have to define the term evangelical because it is now meaning almost the exact opposite of what it has historically meant. It used to be that evangelical historically meant these were people who really believed the Bible. Done. So in that sense, in the historical sense, we would call ourselves an evangelical church. Uh, but, as the joke goes, uh, sadly, now evangelical has been associated with almost like a political thing that isn't necessarily even tied to biblical evangelicalism. Uh, the joke, though, is I had a friend who uh, knew of a pastor of an evangelical free church. Evangelical free means evangelical, it's just it's a free church, they're not tied strongly to a denomination. And so a family came there, they'd been there for like two years in this church that's made up of evangelicals, and they said, hey, so glad, it sounds like you're, you've been here two years, you've made this your church. They're like, yeah, we love it. The best part is, no evangelicals. And they were serious. They're like, they thought it was great that they put evangelical free as like a C, we're not going to be like that, <laughs> not knowing that, no, you've been around evangelicals the entire two years, which tells us something interesting. Hardly anybody knows what that term means. Right now, it seems to be tied to some doctor or some not doctrinal, some political disposition. Let me just tell you, it's supposed to mean these are people who believe the Bible. Now, another time we could talk about all the cool, interesting recent history, and there's a lot of interesting things to know about. But the sad reality is, most people who call themselves evangelical now, we happen to know, are not, because an evangelical in the historical sense would be someone that believes that the Word of God is authoritative and is inspired, and that we should believe it. I'm going to zero in on one particular issue here that came up in the State of Theology survey because it's really important and I want us to know about it. They asked uh, evangelicals, do you believe that, man, that people are born guilty in the sight of God? And 65% of them said, no, not at all. Interestingly enough, this is almost exactly the same number as when they asked just the general population, 
are people born guilty in the sight of God? And 71% said, oh, no, not at all. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing to note because what we were seeing on a lot of these things is that when they asked evangelicals what they believed, it seemed to match almost perfectly or at least generally close to what the general population agreed. And if you've noticed also, a lot of popular, quote, evangelical leaders tend to kind of just put their finger in the wind and say, ah, this is acceptable to the culture, so we'll say that. What concerns me most deeply is how few are actually getting their beliefs from the word of God. So what we're going to do is we're going to dig into Romans chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to address this issue of what we call original sin. It's the doctrine of the sin nature, the doctrine that like apart from God, it doesn't matter how little or how much we've sinned, we're still condemned unless God saves us. So look to Romans chapter 12, or Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. I'm going to pray and kick into it. Father God, um, I will just acknowledge there's been a lot of distractions and heartbreaks today. Uh, we've had trials this morning. Uh, and so I ask that you would work through this teaching of the word today that I would only teach in accordance with what you have planned, what is your will, and nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. Uh, and then give us listening ears that we would know the truth and, um, and follow you faithfully. In Christ's name, amen. All right, starting in verse 12, it says, uh, actually, could I get someone to read 12 through 14 for me? Go for it, brother. 12 through 14. Okay, so some key things to notice in this. Thank you very much, brother. First of all, the language here is clear, is that sin is coming into the world through one guy, Adam. The first man created Adam is how we got sin in the world. A little side note also, some important things. This is one of the reasons why we really do believe in a six-day creation. We call it fiat creation. Um, because if there was not one ancestor of man, Things get real wacky when we start thinking about the sin nature. We believe that God created man from the dust of the earth, that he really did that miraculously, not through some wild evolutionary process. But second, we recognize that that death came through the sin of this one man. In other words, every bit of cancer, every time someone has passed away, uh, every evil in the world, uh, even all the way down to why mosquitoes bite us, and I'm not joking, Every one of these things is a result of the fall of man. Man sinned and brought death and destruction into the world. So a little side note on that also. It means that whatever is going wrong in the world is not God's fault. Like, oh, God, why did you mess this up? Why did you make... No, it's because we brought this in in accordance with our will, not his. A couple of other things here. It notes that also that even though the law of Moses had not been given, sin was still there. Death still reigned. It wasn't being highlighted in the same way, but it was there. And the last thing we see is this language that Adam is a type of him who was to come. Have you guys heard of this concept of Old Testament typology? Okay, like two of us. All right, let me just clarify. We have many things in the Old Testament that are meant to point forward 
to gospel realities. For instance, the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was a real thing that God instituted. They really did kill animals as a way of pointing forward to the perfect Lamb of God who was going to be sacrificed for us. And we see this in many things. We have an Old Testament reality that is limited and imperfect, but that points forward to the perfect thing, and that is Christ and his perfect gospel. So when we talk about Adam being a type of him who is to come, the idea is Adam is to be a foreshadowing or a forerunner that the real version is coming later. And this is critical, the idea that Adam sinned and he is the one who has brought guilt into the world means that there has to be a savior, what we call a second Adam or a last Adam, who will come and make all things new. Hopefully it's really obvious to you that we're talking about Jesus there. Okay, if not, I mean, we can talk about that, but we need that to be clear. Um, Don't think we're saying that some other person is coming, right? Um, All right, so could I get someone to read verses 15 through 17? Go for it, brother. Okay, that's good, perfect. Thank you very much. Now, now keep in mind that this same theme, now we've talked about Adam, now we're talking about the second Adam. The first Adam does one thing, the second Adam does the other. I'm going to read 15 through 17, and then we're going to zero on this again. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not the result of that man's sin. For the judgment following the trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following the many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive... I just read that same thing again, didn't I? I slid right to the wrong thing. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. It's been quite a day. I meant to jump to 18. Um, You did a great job reading that. I didn't need to read it again. (laughs) Therefore, as trespass... Now, a side note, I'm going to say, I'm going to blame Paul for this because of how he reiterates things. Because 18 through 21 is kind of saying the same thing, just clarifying it from a different angle. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through Christ, through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, now I want you to note the contrast here. Uh, All I did on this slide is compare these two sections. 
we see that through the first Adam, he sinned. The second Adam, Jesus, obeyed. The first Adam brought death. The second Adam brought life. Have you noticed the the clear contrast here? Uh, Death separated all men from God under the first Adam. Righteousness brings life and restoration to God to believers in the second Adam. All men sin under the first Adam, and all are brought to righteousness. All the believing are brought to righteousness under Christ. We see that sin existed even before the law of Moses under Adam, and that the sin that abounded through the law was covered by abundant grace under Christ. We see that death reigns under Adam, life reigns under Christ, trespass brings condemnation under Adam, grace brings righteousness and uh, and life under Christ, Adam is this type of Jesus, and Jesus is the last and perfect Adam. I hope that clarification is there. Can I just ask, how does this, why does this matter for this concept of original sin, or this concept of how we are born guilty? What does this have to do with that? It may bring, why does it matter that we are born guilty under Adam? Why is that so important for the gospel? Anybody have a thought on that? Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's the premise. If we don't recognize that, then there's no need for a gospel. There's a second point. That was good. That's the second point I'm looking for. Yeah. 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 Okay, this is good. This stark contrast here. Think about this. If I got into my sin nature because I'm under Adam, I'm not going to be able to get out of it on my own works, right? Not only am I guilty because he's my representative, as we're going to talk about in a second, but also I inherited that sin nature. I sinned from the moment I was able to, right? And we can talk a lot about, oh, try hard and do good. I will never be good enough for a perfect God. I won't. It doesn't matter how much. I'm still, like, I still have sin in me. I'm still under the guilt of Adam. I have, there has to be a way in which I'm placed from the authority of Adam under the authority of Christ. From the headship of Adam into the headship of Christ. So we understand this. That it's, if I don't get this idea of original sin, I can't get the idea of salvation in Christ by grace. Cool? So, a couple of things I need to address really fast. There are two views, two popular ones at least, on how this original sin thing comes to us. Um, one, and it's, it's all related to headship, one is what we call the federal headship view. The federal headship view is the idea that Adam was our representative. Um, he is our, was our father, he's our representative, and even though he's the one who took the fruit and ate it in the garden, and I wasn't there to do it, he's my representative. And we can say, oh, this doesn't seem fair. But the reality is, this is how the world works. Uh, Brothers and sisters, like God did design a world that is built around this idea of headship. Christ is head of the church. Uh, A husband is head of his family. Um, Even civil authorities have a type of headship over us. So I can say, well, hey, I don't like that the governor does this thing. It doesn't really matter. Like in the civil arena, he, he has headship over me and he's my representative. So it is, except much more. Adam, doesn't matter that I don't like what he did. I could say, well, I would have done something different. I probably wouldn't have done something different. But the reality is, he was, he was my head. 
the federal headship, and he did this thing. And so we have guilt that is passed down from us, but also the sin nature comes to us. I'm born guilty, and I'm born a guilt-making person. Um, I am born guilty, and I am born wanting to sin. This comes from Adam. There is a second view we call the seminal headship view, and the idea is that you don't inherit Adam's guilt, but you still inherit the sin nature. And I'm going to say it doesn't account for some of these passages like we read today, like in Adam all die. It gets the whole sin nature thing. I will say seminal headship, we can say, is maybe within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy, but it just doesn't explain things well. Federal headship is what we hold to here. It makes a lot of sense. So if somebody believes in seminal headship, don't, you know, call them a heretic and punch them. Just say, well, you're wrong. I love you. I did this to a friend of mine. We were had a mutual, uh, he has a friend who is getting into a cult, and he calls me because, you know, the charismatic guys always call the reformed guys when they need theological help. And he calls me, and he says something about blah, 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 and prophecy, and I'm like, well, you're wrong. But you're, you're still within the bounds of orthodoxy. So you're my brother. And he laughs and whatever, and we like, because we get along really well. This is, that's, I would say, the seminal headship thing fits in that. It's like, eh, hey, you're wrong if you believe that, but you're still a Christian. So it's cool. We love you. Anyway, carrying on. So something we need to understand here is this idea that we are born in sin, but also we sin. Right? We're recognizing from original sin that we're born guilty under Adam, but also like, you know what? Even if you didn't inherit that, you still sin. So we see this multiple times. Of course, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I need to clarify this one because people misunderstand this. There are some who would apply this verse to say that somehow in sexuality is inherently wicked. And I'm like, well, no, 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 no. Uh, obviously, outside the bounds of marriage, it is sin. But God has designed for marriage, for a man and woman to come together. He has designed that. It's a wonderful thing. He wants you to have kids. That's not what this passage is saying. It's not saying that because your mother had sex that, that you are guilty. No, that's not how this works. The idea is she was under the headship of Adam. When she conceived you with your father, uh, yeah, you inherited a sin nature. This is what this verse is talking about. So please don't go and think that like you shouldn't get married as a result of this. I just always need to clarify. Cults twist this one every now and then. Uh, we also see in Ephesians 2, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 17:9. it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The idea here is that like, ah, oh, my heart is sinful. I'm not going to choose what is right on my own. Where Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's all of us. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. A little side note, this is not like happy things to say. right? This is not the kind of thing that, like, there are a lot of pastors that would say, hey, everybody, you know, you're so valuable and you're such a good person. And so that's why we've put this whole thing together. We're going to play this music that makes you feel good and then you're going to want to do good because you are good. That's kind of the opposite of scripture. Don't worry, we're getting to the good news later. But you have to preach the bad news for the good news to make any sense. Some pastors, I will acknowledge, also don't get to the good news. And that's another problem. We're going to get to the good news, so just hang with me, all right? But the idea here is that you were bent towards sin from the beginning. So with that in mind, I need to acknowledge there are two different views on sin nature. A right one and a wrong one. 
Um, you might have heard, uh, any of you guys ever heard of Augustine of Hippo? Or he's often called St. Augustine. Sometimes they'll call him St. Augustine, which is totally fine. But there's a St. Augustine, Florida that's named after him. And I like to differentiate between the city and the guy. I like to say Augustine. But Augustine was a wonderful scholar uh, from about the 4th century A.D., brilliant guy. We get so much good from Augustine. And all he does is study scripture and he's like, well, this is what it says. And then he's kind of coined a few terms that are like the word we have for this. The term original sin, the idea that we're guilty on, on, under, uh, from Adam, just as we read, that's his terminology. The kind of opposite of Augustine's original sin, though, is this guy Pelagius. And Pelagius thought, no, you're not born bad. You're born as a blank slate. And everybody's born a blank slate, and you have a totally free, unencumbered will that you're just going to choose one way or the other. Now, he doesn't do a good job explaining as to how everyone then still chooses evil. <laughs> right? Like, what, I want to be like Pelagius, man, seriously. Do you know anybody that freely chose for their entire life to do what is right? Well, no. It just doesn't happen. But Pelagius is kind of a problem because his view has influenced even those that we would sometimes kind of think of as like popular Christians. Um, I will tell you guys, Charles Finney denied original sin and adopted Pelagianism. And it makes him a false teacher. I know that a lot of people like him, but let me just tell you, Finney, his whole view was, let's get everybody whipped up in emotion in a service because then if their emotions are all tracking in a good way, then they're more likely to choose what's good. So if we can have this altar call, we can get everybody whipped up, then they'll make these good decisions. Well, then they realize that they would only make the decision like that day at the church service, and then they go and live like a halion after that. So he's like, I know, we'll move everybody to Oberlin, and then in Oberlin, we'll set up a Christian utopia where then you'll choose right all the time because it's other people that want to choose right. If you've ever visited Oberlin, you will know that it did not work out very well. All right? I mean, it's a plain fact. Because people have a sin nature. Anyway. Oh, so, Pelagius is a bad dude. Anyway, um, so understanding this idea then, like, okay, I know I'm born a sinner. I know I'm born guilty. Uh, let's talk about some of the hopeful things related to this. If you pay attention, this idea of original sin is actually what necessitates the virgin birth. You might remember in, in Genesis 3:15, it says, like God, as he's cursing the serpent, says this, I will put enmity between you uh, and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The idea is like, you're going to hurt him. He's going to kill you. Notice the language is not seed of Adam or seed of man, but seed of woman. And the idea is that the sin nature has been passed down through Adam. We also see in Isaiah 7:14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, a virgin, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Wow, so it's interesting that like seed of woman, now we have a virgin who is going to conceive, almost like she's getting out of that whole sinfulness of Adam passing down. What we see here is that this whole Psalm 51.5 does not apply to Jesus because he is not inheriting a sin nature from an earthly father. He has a sinless life and it's what allows him to do what he does. All right, so I know we're a little over on time, but you guys are with me? Okay, so I'm going to jump over to Romans 1. 
So we're understanding that like the, the idea of original sin is what necessitates the virgin birth, which is prophesied and built into scripture. It's really important. It's also really wonderful and beautiful and miraculous. But now I need to come back to this reality that like things are not right. We've recognized that people are sinners. Now I need to kind of lean into this a little bit more and see what the result of that is. So in Romans 1, 18 through 25... I'm just going to read the first few verses. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to him. And then it goes on to talk about the invisible attributes of God, that he is a God of order, that he's a God of creation. All these things, in the, like the world is perfectly created. And yet, those who are in sin which would be anybody that doesn't have Jesus, it says is suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. Uh, if you have ever engaged in any type of apologetic debate with a non-believer, it's always interesting to me that I can take them on a circle. They'll, they'll have a challenge against Christianity. I answer it with usually historical evidence and with all these kind of other things. And so they jump to the next thing. And before too long, I've answered all of them. And now they've come back to the original thing that they've already forgotten the answer to. They don't counter it. They just start over again. It's not, it, the reason is not because somehow Christianity does not have beautiful and wonderful evidence. We've got a lot of evidence. Really good. In fact, we have an entire thought structure, entire worldview that is comprehensive and makes sense. And it's always interesting. It's always the atheists who challenge something, but then they're using Christian presuppositions to do it. I don't know if you've noticed Neil deGrasse Tyson, kind of a famous scientist guy. Um, brilliant man, I will acknowledge. Uh, he is an outspoken atheist. And how often, though, he will appeal to design. Because science presupposes the idea that the world has been created with order and that you can study that order. right? That, I mean, that's, it's, science presupposes the idea of this order. And so he was making some comment about the Top Gun Maverick movie and where, like, I guess it's like he's going multiple times the speed of sound and ejects from a plane. And, and so DeGrasse Tyson is saying, like, Blah, 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 blah. Like the human body is not designed to withstand that kind of pressure, da, 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 da. And he's done this kind of thing a lot of times. But it's like, do you hear yourself? Like you're contradicting yourself. This is, it's always fun for me when I'm engaging with an atheist who's making a moral claim. And I'm like, why? Like, I mean, there's, I believe in objective morality because God is a God of order and he's, he's placed his law in the world. So like, why should I do such and such? And they just get lost. Because they'll say, well, everybody knows you should do it. And I'm like, okay, yes, I do, because God has written the law in our hearts. I agree everybody knows this. But what I'm saying is your worldview does not account for objective morality. And they just get stuck. It's actually really kind of fun. Because scripture talks about how the law of God is designed to shut the mouth. And it's really great. Has you ever been in this thing where it's like, oh, we're just going back and forth. And this guy's just wearing me out. And, and he's just not even paying attention. I love asking them, all right, so then you prove. Why, why is there objective morality? Because you're appealing to it, so you prove it to me. Without God, how do we have it? And they just shut up. I mean, I'm just really like, why should I do this? Let me just tell you, though, the issue is not that these are people that lack information. The issue is that they have sin who's suppressing what they already know. Later on, it actually talks about them being God-haters, inventors of evil. It talks about homosexuality and slander and gossip and inventing new evil. And the idea is when someone is suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness, it's not like you can just sit down and appeal to their good nature. They don't have one. I need to make this clear. None of us did either before Christ redeemed us. 
Cool? This is why in Romans 3, verse 10, it says, As it is written, no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one is good, not even one. This is why um, we talk about, you know, seeker-sensitive churches. It doesn't usually work for very long, right? Because, like, there's nobody seeking after God. The idea is that, no, I'm suppressing the truth in my unrighteousness. What is needed is not a cool emotional experience for me to temporarily make a better decision. What is needed is for my heart of stone to be removed and for God to put a heart of flesh in me to take my dead spirit and make it alive miraculously by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way this is going to work, which hopefully... Leads right into my next couple of points here. You all have heard the terminology of original sin. You can go to the next one, brother. Um, We also will sometimes call this total depravity. And we misunderstand total depravity sometimes. Uh, Total depravity doesn't mean you are constantly always doing the worst thing you can be doing. Total depravity means that like, because no one seeks after God, because you're suppressing the truth in your unrighteousness, you are not going to believe in God apart from a work of God to get you to believe. Simple as that. This is why we say no one is righteous. No one seeks after God. This is all the bummer part. We're getting to the good part. This necessitates then what we call unconditional election. If I'm already from birth guilty and I don't want to do the things of God, God can't look and say, you know what? That one's going to be so great. Oh, because that, that one's going to be so nice to people. And she's gonna, she's gonna, you know, she's gonna win so many people to Jesus, or she's gonna be really good at this thing. And we're like, no, there's no way that God can look and say that one's great because all of us are under unrighteousness. That means when He decides to save us, it's not because of good He sees in us, or even potential He sees in us. It's all because of His grace. This means you didn't earn it. Your potentiality didn't earn it. It means it's totally God. So we can kind of talk about how this kind of becomes a domino effect then. If I'm wicked and I'm not going to choose God, God has to choose me first. And then if that's going to happen, then he's going to have to be the one that pays my debt. We call this particular atonement. And then he's the one that has to regenerate me and then make sure I make it to the end. It means it's him through and through. This is why Romans 5.15 says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. I want to reiterate this from some other passages as well. In Colossians 2.3 it says, When you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Just this language, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I was like to say, can you, have you ever like tried to tell a dead person like, hey, get up and accept Jesus, right? Like it, it doesn't work. There has to be a miracle, right? Um, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in, with our trust, in, in our trust, transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice that every description here of God making us alive, uh, I guess Colossians 2 doesn't get into detail in this part that I read, but everything is about God's love and God's grace and God's mercy, and that's why he's made us alive. 
None of it is about because we're so great, because we're so wonderful, because we're so... No, no, no. It's like God recognizes that there's children out there that need to get adopted. He doesn't go and say, I think that one's going to be good at football. I think that one's going to really make me proud and make a lot of money. He just says, that kid who's still a wretch, he's mine. Like that kid, I'm I'm making him mine, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take out that heart of stone that's in him, and I'm gonna put a heart of flesh in him. I'm gonna put my spirit in him. I'm gonna make him my child, and I'm gonna form him into the same image as his brother Jesus. And that's how I'm gonna make sure that this kid turns out all right. Not because of his merit, not because of his works, but because I'm full of grace, because I'm full of love. Maybe this should tell us something that the whole point of all this is that God gets glory and that we benefit from it in the process. Cool. So when we say this regeneration, this language here is this new birth where it says he made us alive. Uh, When you hear Jesus say you must be born again, this is what we're talking about. When we hear the term spiritual birth, all these kinds of things. We even usually when we say I got saved, notice that's in the passive. You got saved because God regenerated you. That's the language here. And we see this again and again. In Ezekiel 36, it's promised. In Titus 3, it says, He saved us not by works done by, done by us in unrighteousness or in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And you can see the other passages through there. God does a mighty, mighty work. So this is the good news. If I was under the headship of Adam and I was suffering all the effects of sin as a result then all that was really needed is for Christ, who has already paid my sin debt, who has already been crucified on the cross, already atoned for my sins, to adopt me, and I I move from under the headship of Adam to the headship of Christ. And it really is that simple. When that happens, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21 describes it. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, if I understand rightly, and I do, (laughs) that in the same way that I was under condemnation under Adam, When Christ regenerates me, when I repent and believe the gospel, I'm moved from death into life, and the language is that I'm a new creation. And so I will say, in the same way that I need to recognize how wretched I was before Christ, I also have to recognize how righteous I am in Christ, and that that is not a prideful thing. Paul Washer has a great illustration. He says, imagine that they, he's like, I've got two pigs and I bring two pigs up here and I have a wonderful plate of like really nice steak and a sweet potato and all this other wonderful stuff. And then I also have just garbage. And he's like, the pigs are going to come up. They're going to eat the garbage because they're pigs. Pigs love garbage. They just don't care. But he's like, if, if in a moment one of those pigs became a human, he's going to vomit up the garbage And he's going to begin eating the good food because 
Humans don't want garbage. And there is something similar. In the same way that I was a wretch under Adam, when I am transformed and made into a new creation, I want the things of God. And it is a miraculous and wonderful thing. And so please don't go on, for those of you who have repented and believed the gospel, don't go on thinking, oh, I'm just such a wretch. No, like, yeah, you still have some sin in there that needs to be worked through. You're a new creation, brother. You're a new creation, sister. Rejoice in that hope. Uh, a couple of last things here. Uh, I recommend a few books. Uh, you've got the notes that I emailed out, but Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul, great book. Doctrines of Grace by James Boyce. The Total Depravity of Man by A.W. Pink. And, of course, Our Confession of Faith is the London Baptist Confession. There's a lot of other good ones. We just like that one. Um, good stuff. Everybody with me? What does all this say about God? He's full of grace. What does it say about us? Yeah, we need God. There's nothing we can do to merit it. How does all this relate to the gospel, which might be the most obvious question we could ever ask? How does this relate to the gospel? Yeah, this is the gospel. All right, so I'm going to pray, and then we have Angela today sharing the gospel, right? Father God, thank you for being with us today. Um, Lord, I am continually made aware that I am, I was once a sinner. I still sometimes sin, but Lord, you have, you have changed my heart and you have completely changed my destiny and my headship. And so God, we praise you. Uh, there is not enough words to explain how wonderful what you have done is. So receive glory. May we understand it as best as we can to your glory. Uh, be with us uh, as Angela proclaims the gospel in Christ's name. Amen.